Hello everyone, I'm Debbie Roberts, owner and financial advisor at Property Apprentice. Join us today for the Week in Review, where I talk about current events for the everyday investor and home buyer. Our topics for this week, first up from the Mortgage Mag on the 26th of September, OCR, November Hike or May Cut. Topic two from RNZ on the 25th of September, dueling fiscal plans, Labour national economic rivalry comes to a head. Topic number three from Good Returns on the 27th of September, New Zealand's next top town. Fourth topic for this week in review from Stuff on the 27th of September, banks compete hard for some home loan customers. Fifth topic from CoreLogic on the 27th of September, mortgage lending flows rise for the first time since 2021. And we've got a bonus topic this week from Good Returns on the 22nd of September, significant recovery underway. So first topic for this week in review from the Mortgage Mag. On the 26th of September, OCR November hike or May cut. The upcoming OCR reviews anticipated to retain the current rate of 5.5%. Nevertheless, three banks, ANZ, Westpac and HSBC, are predicting a rise to 575 at the November RBNZ meeting, despite the Reserve Bank's stance against further hikes in this cycle. BNZ and Infometrics are even forecasting a higher OCR of 6%, a level seen only for only five and a half years in the past 25 years. ANZ's forecast is more bullish on house prices than the Reserve Bank in New Zealand, expecting one more OCR hike. This projection hinges on annual house price inflation at around 5% in 2024, then falling to approximately 3% in 2025. Any housing-related inflation pressure might prompt RBNZ to raise rates, halting the housing market's momentum. This scenario, according to ANZ's chief economist Sharon Zollner, could stimulate ac economic activity. New homeowners purchasing durable goods would support retailers and manufacturers, allowing them to raise prices. Higher house prices could benefit residential developers by improving margins and boosting demand for construction materials and labour. Westpac suggests a 50-50 chance of another OCR hike in November due to recent economic data. Westpac's chief economist, Kelly Eckhold, asserts that the Reserve Bank in New Zealand may need to tighten policy further to combat persistently high inflation rates and potential longer-term inflationary pressures. Strong net migration supporting the housing market and the economy could pressure the Reserve Bank in New Zealand to raise the OCR especially as another recession is expected by year-end. The Reserve Bank will closely monitor the CPI, the Consumer Price Index report, and other data in the coming weeks before making a decision. Some economists anticipate rate cuts, with KiwiBank's chief economist, Jared Kerr, suggesting cuts as early as May next year. He expects a reversal of the interest rate increases, with inflation reaching 4% by year-end, and easing down to 3% next year. BNZ maintains its view that the Reserve Bank will keep rates steady in October, with a future move likely to be a cut. My opinion is I tend to agree with the latter two. I think that the Reserve Bank's probably done enough because we've still got half of the mortgages in New Zealand that are coming off low interest rates within the next 12 months. So, you know, that is going to further slow down the economy as well. So I think... Fingers crossed, inflation might be continuing its downward trek for us in New Zealand.
Second topic for this week in review from RNZ on the 25th of September, dueling fiscal plans, Labour-National economic rivalry comes to a head. Both the National and Labour parties are gearing up to unveil their comprehensive fiscal plans this week, intensifying their economic talking points. In fact, they're both probably out already by the time you hear this. The elections notably focused on the economy with concerns surrounding the feasibility of their flagship policies. National's tax plan has faced scrutiny for a potential $530 million deficit, but the party has yet to provide substantial evidence refuting this claim. Meanwhile, Labour's proposal to exempt unprocessed fruits and vegetables from GST has been criticised as potentially benefiting supermarkets more than consumers, making it politically challenging to reverse. During a televised debate between Nicola Willis and Grant Robertson, familiar disputes arose about each other's plans, with both parties committing to achieving a surplus in 2027. Later in the day, Willis claimed that around $51 billion of of Labour's promises lacked funding, including provisions for light rail projects, the Lake Onslow Power Scheme, social income insurance and the GST exemption on fruit and vegetables. Robertson defended these measures, stating that they'd be addressed in future budgets. Robertson clarified that the social unemployment insurance scheme would not be implemented until economic conditions were suitable and the light rail and Lake Onslow projects were still in the planning stages. Oh, I can hear a budget blowout coming. Funding solutions similar to National's proposals could include value capture or congestion charging. Despite extended timeframes, Labour remained committed to the light rail project in Auckland. The politicians also announced a policy to build 6,000 additional public houses, buoyed by better-than-expected GDP growth, countering earlier predictions of a shallow recession. Although, to be fair, a good reason that we've had an increased GDP is because we've had high net migration. In contrast, National's housing spokesperson Chris Bishop criticised Labour for negativity and lack of new ideas, emphasising National's positive plans, including a 100-point plan, energy production goals, and a promise to reverse all of Labour's speed limit reductions. While Bishop pointed out the high cost of Labour's social housing policy, he also noted the absence of information about its funding. With early voting just a week away and both parties set to release their full fiscal plans, voters are seeking comprehensive explanations for these missing details. So tune in next week and we'll give you a summary of both of their full fiscal plans. It's a tongue twister in itself. If you want to learn more about investing in property, join me at one of our free events, How to Succeed with Property Investing in 2023. I'll discuss strategies for successful investing from my perspective as a financial advisor, available live online or in person in our office in Ellerslie in Auckland. Check out propertyapprentice.co.nz for upcoming dates and register today. We don't sell property, so it's all about increasing your knowledge to reduce your risk. If you've already been to one of our free events and you'd like to find out more about how we can help you to reach your financial goals, you can also book a no-obligation phone call or meeting with my husband, Paul Roberts, via the website. Third topic this week in review from Good Returns on the 27th of September, New Zealand's next top town. Infometrics examined the anticipated changes in New Zealand's larger towns and cities using Stat New Zealand's Urban Rural Area Classification. Infometrics senior economist Nick Brunsden 
highlights that urban and town populations are in constant flux, responding to factors like shifting age demographics, fluctuations in net migration, economic prospects of key industries, and intangible appeal. To forecast growth in these areas, Infometrics utilised DAT New Zealand's 2022 subnational population projections for statistical area two or SA2 regions, which draw from historical trends, demographic influences, and input from territorial authorities. Among the seven major urban centres, most will see population growth over the coming decades, albeit at varying rates. However, Dunedin stands out with a projected 6% growth from 2018 to 2048, lagging behind others with growth ranging from 10% to 34%. Auckland remains the largest urban area with a substantial 21% growth, equivalent to adding Hamilton and Lower Hutt combined. And that puts things into perspective, doesn't it? Christchurch holds its position as the second largest major urban area, but Wellington's projected 11% growth by 2048 could propel Hamilton into the third spot. In the realm of large urban areas, shifts in rankings are more apparent. Rotorua's modest 3% growth could see it surpassed by Porirua with 14% growth and the Hibiscus Coast in northern Auckland, 10% growth. Hastings' robust 12% growth may overtake Nelson, which anticipates a 5% increase. Medium-sized urban areas witness more significant ranking shifts, including Pukekohe with 43% growth and Rolleston at 41% growth, overtaking Blenheim, 7% growth, Paraparumu, 6% growth, and Timaru, 2% growth. Notably, Rolleston, once the fastest-growing urban area, is projected to reach a population of 39,400 by 2048, potentially transitioning from a small town to a medium urban area. However, it would fall short of city status, requiring a contiguous urban area with a population of 50,000. East of Rolleston lies Lincoln, which is another rapidly growing cell and district town. With minimal rural zoning between them, the combined Rolleston-Lincoln urban area could reach 53,900 residents by 2048, potentially qualifying as a city, surpassing Whanganui, Upper Hutt, Invercargill and Nelson. New Zealand's overall population growth is slowing, dropping from an annual average of 1.3% from 2000 to 2022 to a projected 0.7% from 2022 to 2048. Maybe that's because no one can afford to have kids with this crisis of financial situations. The slowdown results from an ageing population, not cost of living crisis, with an increasing number of deaths offsetting modestly rising births. Net migration becomes pivotal in preventing population decline. Despite the national slowdown, none of the major large or medium urban areas are projected to experience population declines between 2022 and 2048, although some face negligible growth. However, the 146 small urban areas classified by Stats New Zealand, 26 are expected to witness population declines during this period. Probably not good areas to choose as investments. Fourth topic for this week in review, topic four from staff on the 27th of September, banks compete hard for some home loan customers. 
Banks are engaged in fierce competition to attract their preferred home loan customers, according to a banking expert. KPMG's latest analysis of the nation's financial institutions reveals a 12.7% increase in the banking sector's profit after tax from March to June, rising from $1.54 billion in the March quarter to $1.74 billion in June. Despite this growth, interest income only saw a slight 1.4% increase, while non-interest income surged by 30.4% compared to the previous quarter. The earnings banks generated from their loans remained relatively stable during the quarter. Brad Olson, CEO at Infometrics, noted that this suggests the increased funding costs were being fully passed on to customers, raising questions about their competitiveness, especially in the context of declining house sales. Banks' net interest margins, the difference between their funding costs and what they charge borrowers, ranged from 2% at TSB to 4% at Heartland Bank. ASB, Heartland and TSB reported a 10 basis point decline in their margins, while Westpac saw a 10 basis point increase. John Kensington, a KPMG partner, emphasised that banks were still aggressively competing for high-quality loan business, particularly from individuals with strong incomes and substantial equity seeking property loans. However, they were exercising caution with other borrowers, especially those with less favourable financial profiles. Mortgage broker Glenn McLeod observed that banks appeared to be hesitant at times, not launching major marketing campaigns even as the spring sales season approached. He attributed this to the market's high uncertainty, describing it as the weirdest he had ever operated in. The report also noted that while the official cash rate remained at 5.5%, mortgage rates continued to rise due to more expensive wholesale funding. Despite these challenges, new lending for residential mortgages saw a 26% increase in June compared to March, reaching $15.9 billion. Banks saw a decrease in impaired asset expenses, which boosted their profits. However, provisions for bad debt increased, reflecting the rising cost of living. Kensington pointed out that the second quarter of 2023 marked the second consecutive quarter where each of the five major banks reported an increase in past due loans, indicating that more customers were struggling with repayments. Kensington also noted that banks had been somewhat insulated from the broader economic downturn because many customers had not yet transitioned to new mortgage rates and were ahead on their payments. However, he warned that prolonged high inflation and interest rates could have a more significant impact on banks in the future. Last topic for the, well, no, not the last topic because we've got a bonus topic this week, haven't we? This topic for this week in review from CoreLogic on the 27th of September, mortgage lending flows rise for the first time since 2021. Mortgage lending activity in August showed an annual increase, the first in nearly two years. This rebound can be attributed in part to the relaxation of loan-to-value rules, the LBR rules, starting on June the 1st. While further growth in lending, property sales and house prices is expected, it may be modest in comparison to previous levels. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand, the RBNZ, reported that gross mortgage lending activity in August reached $5.8 billion dollars a $0.4 billion increase from the previous year, marking the first annual rise since August 2021. It's important to note that these figures cover new loans, top-ups and bank switches, excluding existing loan repricing. 
Within this total, owner-occupier has borrowed more in August compared to the same month the previous year, whereas investors remained at a similar level. Investors' cautious approach is likely due to the current challenges of low rental yields and high mortgage rates impacting cash flow for investment purchases, not to mention the tax implication. Interest-only lending remains in check, with approximately 36% of investor loans in August being interest-only down from a peak of 46% in July-August the previous year. For owner-occupiers, the figure's around 14%, down from approximately 20% a year ago. Notably, lending to investors without the required 35% deposit, unless for new builds, remains almost non-existent. However, since the relaxation of LBR rules in June, there has been a noticeable increase in lending to investors with the 35% to 40% deposit. Despite this, overall investor lending remains subdued and their activity in the market remains limited. This suggests that investors with 35 to 40% deposit may be primarily refinancing existing loans or switching banks rather than actively acquiring more properties. Similarly, lending with low deposits to owner-occupiers has increased recently from approximately 6% in May to 8 to 9% currently. While still below the new 15% limit, it represents the highest share since late 2021. Importantly, around 75% of these low deposit loans for owner-occupiers are utilised by first-home buyers. The Reserve Bank of New Zealand's latest data also includes a breakdown by loan purpose, revealing that top-ups and bank switches have remained relatively stable in recent months, but loans for property purchases are showing early signs of an upswing. However, the speed and magnitude of any short-term rebound in property sales, lending volumes or house prices are subject to caution. Mortgage rates are unlikely to significantly decrease in the near future and serviceability test rates continue to be a significant obstacle for many potential borrowers. Furthermore, there's a possibility that formal caps on debt-to-income ratios will be implemented by the Reserve Bank of New Zealand in 2024, although it's not a given. Although high debt-to-income lending has already decreased, which is why it's not a given, or why it might not make any difference or much difference. In the long run, DTIs could align house prices more closely with incomes and limit property ownership until incomes have grown sufficiently, potentially taking five to seven years. Although from what I've seen, the LBR restrictions would likely have a much bigger impact immediately on house prices and activity in the market rather than an introduction of debt to income. Topic number six from Good Returns on the 22nd of September. So this is the bonus topic for this week. Significant recovery underway. Kiwi Bank's chief economist Jared Kerr believes interest rate cuts could begin as early as May of next year. Well, he's hoping for that one, Jared. Speaking at a Bailey's old versus new property webinar, Kerr suggests that inflation will hit 4% by the year's end, gradually tapering to 3% the following year and eventually stabilising at 2% within the next 18 to 24 months. He expects the Reserve Bank of New Zealand, which will have completed the majority of its mandate by this time next year, to begin a series of interest rate cuts. These reductions are expected to affect mortgage rates, business lending rates and other interest rates throughout the economy. Kerr anticipates these cuts as early as May, 
allowing the Reserve Bank of New Zealand a full year after its last rate increase in May of the current year to evaluate the ongoing economic impact. Kerr believes that the Reserve Bank of New Zealand will reduce the cash rate from 55 to 3% relatively quickly, providing significant mortgage relief to bank customers. Is it too soon to keep our fingers crossed? Over the past 18 months, Kiwi Bank has raised mortgage rates, causing financial strain. While half of the country's mortgage book had previously benefited from low interest rates, the remaining half will transition over the next six months. This will likely result in six to nine more months of financial stress for many households. From a real estate perspective, a recovery is definitely underway, with property prices beginning to rise. Kerr predicts that this first phase of recovery will continue over the next six months. The second phase, when interest rates decrease and confidence and leverage in the market increase, it's expected to fuel the second wave in the property market. Kerr observes that 100,000 new migrants are entering the country, highlighting the housing supply shortage. With an average of two and a half people per household, New Zealand's currently 40,000 houses short, specifically for new migrants. And we've got a slowdown in construction at the same time. Government policies such as changes in interest deductibility, the triple CFA and rising interest rates have aimed to address demand, but supply remains to be the real issue. Despite population growth, the supply of housing, infrastructure, healthcare and education hasn't kept pace. Kerr concludes that the ongoing migration boom and the return of tourism will further increase housing demand in a market already suffering from a supply deficit. While house prices have rebounded in recent months, the true test will be during the upcoming spring and summer seasons. Kerr expects continued price increases and believes that next year's rate cuts will further boost the housing market, which is already corrected by 17 to 18% from its peak. He predicts at least a 5% increase in house prices next year, with slightly larger gains in the subsequent year. So my thoughts on this are that I'm fully expecting the housing market activity to continue to increase through the rest of spring. I think the housing market's likely to slow down a little bit from mid-December through to mid-January, unless the boom is a lot stronger than we're expecting, in which case it might just carry on business as usual. But the market will certainly pick up again by mid-January next year if we're following the standard property market cycle, the annual cycle. Continuous learning allows you to adapt to changing market conditions and seize opportunities as they arise. If you want to learn more about the property market, join one of our upcoming free events called How to Succeed with Property Investing. As a seasoned property investor and licensed financial advisor, I'll be sharing valuable insights and expert tips to help you on your journey. Our free events cater to all levels of property investors and first-home buyers. I'll also tell you more about how we help our clients to achieve their financial goals. So if you're interested in finding out more about what we do, visit propertyapprentice.co.nz today to secure your spot and register for one of our events. Alternatively, if you've already been to one of our events in the past and you just want to have a no-obligation phone call or meeting with my husband, Paul Roberts, to find out more about what we do and how we could help you, feel free to book a meeting with him through our website. That's propertyapprentice.co.nz. Thanks for listening.